Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 33. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at two of the quartets from Opus 59, the three Razumovsky string quartets, completed in 1806 and dedicated to Count Razumovsky, the Russian ambassador who commissioned the work and for whom Beethoven included a couple of Russian folk songs in his thematic material. It had been six years since the publication of his earlier group of quartets, the six from Opus 18. Those works had not been received quite as well as Beethoven would have liked, mostly because of elements which suggested to the more conservative audience members and critics the perceived abandonment, or perhaps worse, distortion of the classical string quartet tradition of Haydn and Mozart. Of course, Beethoven wanted his new quartets to be appreciated, but at this point in his career, he was not about to sacrifice either his originality or his perceived quirkiness. He knew that there would be certain conservative critics whom he would never please, but he also knew that audiences and even musicians who might react negatively at first to certain elements of his musical style might well be won over when they became more accustomed to those elements, or at least developed a sense of the new expressive qualities made possible by them. According to his early biographer, Thayer, Beethoven remarked to an Italian musician who had found some aspects of the quartets problematic, Oh, they are not for you, but for a later age. So, it is unlikely that Beethoven was much surprised when a great deal of the initial reaction to his new quartets was negative. As one reviewer put it, a rather sympathetic one at that, the quartets are deeply thought and excellently worked, but not generally comprehensible, going on to suggest that they would surely draw the approval of connoisseurs, which was tantamount to saying that the vast majority of music lovers would be unimpressed. It is hardly surprising that more recent critical opinion has been much kinder to these quartets, and some Beethoven authorities now rate the middle period quartets as his greatest, while others tilt more toward the later quartets. The first of the three, his seventh quartet in F major, probably presents the greatest challenge to the listener, and that's where we're going to begin. The first movement is in common time, marked allegro and dolce, and mezzo forte for the cellist, who opens with the melody, and piano for the other strings. Given my earlier comments about how difficult some listeners thought the quartet to be, the opening measures here are quite mild, and in fact, rather cheerful. The theme begins on the fifth of the scale and moves up a fourth by step in quarter notes to the tonic note, before dropping back to its starting point, all in the first two bars. It then moves down a fifth in a slightly circuitous pattern of eighth notes, demonstrating a distinctive pattern of staccato and slur markings. The phrase finishes with an ascending leap of a sixth in quarter notes and then a descending step to arrive back at its starting point. Here's a simplified example. The second four-bar phrase begins in a similar manner, but up a step. After moving up a fourth again in quarter notes, it descends by step this time. The last two bars share a similar articulation pattern, 
but the eighth notes ascend this time around, and we repose on the second scale degree. Harmonically, the first two phrases are rather simple. The first sits on the tonic chord, with violin two and viola repeating the third and fifth of that chord in eighth notes, although the melody does contribute some gentle non-harmonic tones against the repeated tonic. The second phrase begins in the same fashion, but moves to the dominant seventh chord in the last bar and a half. After the opening phrases are presented by the cello, the first violin takes up the theme taking the second phrase up an octave over a dominant seventh chord, and then up a fourth after that, crescendoing along the way, with the entire section coming to a close fortissimo on the tonic chord. After that rather emphatic cadence, most listeners in Beethoven's day would probably have expected at that point to hear some sort of transition to the next theme. They would have developed that sort of expectation simply by listening to other music of the period. They wouldn't necessarily know the terminology associated with the different parts of a sonata movement, but they would probably have heard a number of other pieces which proceeded in more or less the same way, and so they would have anticipated that this movement might as well. And in fact, something that sounds very much like a transition passage does occur at this point, and it's based largely on a new repeated motive. That repeated three-note motive begins with an ascending major sixth, followed by a descending third, and although its general contour remains the same, the exact intervals do not. It also appears to be modulating. Beethoven introduces some chromaticism, and a pair of full diminished seventh chords appear, which seem to have the purpose of undermining the key of F major and directing us to some new key. But in fact, when the 10-measure section has run its course, we're back sitting on a dominant 7th chord in F major. So, if we're not going to hear the official second subject in a new key, what are we going to hear? The texture is certainly new. We begin with first and second violins in thirds, fifths, and sixths sounding rather rustic, actually, and then hand the idea over to viola and cello an octave lower. But the theme itself is not brand new, because it is clearly based on the first theme, starting in measure two. 
It does not continue in the same way. Instead, it continues the flow of eighth notes up the scale. Although the melody concludes with a figure that resembles the closing measures of the first theme in its articulation pattern. So it has some new elements, but is clearly related to the first theme, so much so that I'm going to refer to it as a second, varied restatement of the first theme. This second statement is followed by another transition. You heard the beginning of it in the last excerpt. And this one, studded with sforzando accents and a gradual crescendo, actually does its job. It modulates to C major, the key of the dominant. It makes use of the same ascending quarter note motive we heard in the first subject, but also adds a few new motives into the mix, one based on across-the-bar ties, and another, introduced a bit later, based on a flow of eighth-note triplets, initially descending. The modulation to the dominant I just mentioned actually occurs pretty early, after just 10 bars, and is confirmed by a big fortissimo cadence on the dominant in C major. But Beethoven seems to have concluded that this particular modulation to C major was a little too easy, a little too pat. So, after arriving at the new tonic key, we move on to part two of the transition. He begins it with the cello alone, fortissimo, introducing a motive not really new because it's based on the descending triplets heard earlier in the transition, but new sounding here because of the change in texture. After three bars of the triplet-based motive, Beethoven decides to obfuscate the tonal situation by tossing in a few tonally ambiguous diminished chords expressed in ascending arpeggios in first and second violins. But soon enough, Beethoven sequences himself out of the ambiguous tonality, and we're clearly headed back to C major. And, finally, the real second subject. Here's the transition. The melodic shape of the real second subject provides some contrast with the first, but its mood seems similar. It begins gently enough, again marked dolce, starting on the third of the scale, moving down to the tonic and then up the octave, step by step, climaxing with a trill on the leading tone, right before it reaches the upper tonic note. Here are the first four bars. When those four bars repeat in varied form up an octave, they are not only much more highly embellished, but well on their way to being considerably less gentle. Here's the varied repeat of the first four bars, extended by repetitions of the last two bars, and arriving in the end on an inverted dominant seventh chord, the seventh actually in the bass, with the first violin holding on to a high G, the root of the chord. 
This is followed by a somewhat new idea. It's triplet-based like the end of the earlier transition passage, but here the eighth note triplet pattern starts on a weak beat and ends with a large ascending leap. So, what do we call this? Different commentators have different views on this matter, sometimes just referring to it as part two of the second theme, since there's no real harmonic break between the two passages. On the other hand, there is a significant change in texture here, and in terms of its motivic content, this section really relates more to the transition leading up to the second theme. Is it perhaps a closing section? Does it seem to fulfill that function? As usual, the exact label we use is less important than the fact that the continuity is simply not as clear-cut as was the case in so many of Beethoven's earlier works. And speaking of ambiguity, the six-bar subsection following the triplet-based idea, which is made up of a series of half-note chords often exploiting double stops, has been puzzling listeners since the quartet was first launched into the world. Harmonically, these chords don't seem to have a normal function. They sort of reinforce the key of the dominant, C major, but that doesn't really begin to explain exactly what they're doing here. So these four bars are neither particularly shocking nor mysterious, although the final diminished seventh chord, played forte, is a bit strident. These four bars are simply rather puzzling. Perhaps the only thing that can be said with reasonable certainty is that Beethoven wanted a buffer between the vigorous fortissimo triplet passage which came before and the gentle dolce closing melody that concludes the exposition slipping back gently into the original sonic key of F major. The final section, almost more of a codetta than a real closing section, is mostly rather gentle, and it is also reasonably familiar sounding, resembling the first subject, especially its opening measures, although in this case we hear glimpses of imitation between the first and second violins not heard in the first subject. This new idea tails away gently as the two violins trade off motives and we pass quietly into the development section. Because the development section begins by bringing back the first subject in the original tonic with its original accompaniment, we might first get the impression that we've taken a repeat at the end of the exposition. 
but there's no double bar and no repeat here, so the repeat is an illusion, soon abandoned. We're soon visiting other tonal centers with clear references to various ideas heard in the exposition. But one idea derived from the closing section slash codetta theme I just played soon takes on an importance that few listeners would have predicted. Here it is in its original context, measures three through seven of that theme. Now here is the first part of the development section where that motive appears, now presented in a minor key context, with the melodic shape often expanded, but with the original articulation pattern intact, along with the opening bars of the first subject, also frequently transformed into the minor mode, and the triplet motive from the transition. All of these and more are in evidence. The development section also brings back an expanded section of those mystifying half-note chords and an impressive fugal section as well. And the recapitulation provides some interesting modifications to the main thematic material, including presenting some of it out of order and in unexpected keys. But we spent a great deal of time on this movement, and we have several more to address. So we're going to move on now to the second movement of the F major quartet. Scherzo movements in the later 18th and early 19th century have not generally been of a type that would tend to provoke the ire of critics or musicians. Although a few here and there might express a more serious intent, we usually associate scherzos with more lighthearted or tongue-in-cheek or even humorous moods. And Beethoven's movement, which is in B-flat major and 3-8 time, is labeled Allegretto Vivace e Sempre Scherzando, a reminder, apparently, that all of the movement should be performed in a scherzo-like manner, even if some of it may not seem conducive to that approach. In many ways, this movement would seem to fit the scherzo tag well enough, even though it doesn't employ the traditional large ABA structure, replacing that traditional form with something akin to a sonata form. And yet, there is a fair amount of evidence that this particular movement, or at least aspects of it, actually annoyed a number of early performers and listeners. What aspects of the movement seem to have provoked this negative response? The most likely candidate is the amount of repetition it exhibits, especially the repetition of a single note. 
The first part of the movement has three main thematic elements and a number of subsidiary ones. The first, played pianissimo in the cello to begin the movement, involves the rhythmic repetition of the tonic note for the first four bars. The second main element, also four bars long in its initial presentation, begins with a staccato 16th note arpeggiation of the tonic chord, starting on the fifth of that chord, on the upbeat played by the second violin. This leads immediately to a descending pattern of 16ths and then a new arpeggiation of the tonic, this time starting on the root of the chord and climaxing on a dotted eighth note before starting to descend. It's also followed by a descending group of 16ths, one beginning with broken thirds, that delivers us back to the original starting note. It's not as complicated as it sounds. Those first eight bars are then taken over by the viola and first violin down a major second in the key of A-flat major, a key shift that would have been felt as a bit of a jolt in the early 19th century. But the real sticking point here was the amount of unadorned repetition of a single note or of a single chord. This was something that some early 19th century listeners and performers could neither understand nor appreciate. Here are the first 16 measures altogether. The texture gets much busier from that point, with all four instruments soon jumping in and crescendoing based on a C-flat chord, another harmonic surprise, although it soon resolves to a dominant chord in B-flat major, so it turns out to be just a Neapolitan sixth chord in an unusual inversion. The more robust rhythms alternate with a soft dolce passage based largely on a series of descending eighth notes which returns us to the original tonic key and leads us into another series of robust repeated chords in sixteenth notes. We've now undergone another key shift, this time to D minor, where a new theme is presented, new in terms of its emotional expressiveness, but clearly related to the earlier theme starting in bar 4 that began with the ascending triadic arpeggio. Motives from this theme are distributed freely to all the strings within a few measures, and there are a number of crescendo swells and rapid decrescendos all of it leading to the return of the repeated tonic notes and a new version of the second thematic element I referred to earlier, which soon becomes the most important thematic idea of the first section of the movement as it's tossed back and forth between first and second violins. Thank you. 
As we start to move from Beethoven's new favorite theme to the second thematic area of the movement, calling it a second subject seems a bit of a stretch at this point, Beethoven begins to play some very inventive games with his repeated rhythmic patterns, staggering entrances among the strings, and engaging in powerful and sudden dynamic contrasts. When we arrive at the new theme, it's in F minor. And although it too relates to earlier ideas to some extent, it is novel enough to sound fresh in a somber minor key sort of way. Beethoven exploits this new theme for some time with different variants widely distributed among all four instruments. The development section is a very lively one. There's a lot of stopping and starting with motives tossed around enthusiastically and different keys picked up and dropped without much ceremony. The recapitulation does bring all of the important themes back for a curtain call, although not always in their original garb, and the final bars make it clear that, despite some passages of pseudo-drama, the movement really has been a proper scherzo all along, albeit one seemingly designed to provoke as much as to entertain. Although there's obviously more to hear in this very ambitious scherzo movement, we are going to move on now to the slow movement. It's in F minor 2-4 time and marked adagio molto e misto, and it's an intensely emotional movement with multiple commentators referencing its elegiac mood, one that may reflect a very specific sentiment, since Beethoven, in one of his sketches for the movement, noted on the manuscript the phrase, a weeping willow or acacia over the grave of my brother. This may be a tribute to the memory of his brother George, who died at the age of two several years earlier. But some Beethoven scholars consider that unlikely. And, as you might imagine, a number of other possibilities have been suggested. I'm not going to try to sift through those, but instead I'm going to focus in some detail on the rather distinctive character of the first theme, specifically the first bar. We hear one beat of harmonic support, the fifth of the tonic chord, from the second violin, before the melody enters on the downbeat in the first violin. 
That melody is not a conventional slow movement melody. It too starts on the fifth of the chord, up an octave, with an eighth note, skipping up immediately a minor third to a dotted sixteenth note on a dissonant seventh against the sparse accompaniment from the other strings, which consists only of the root and fifth of the tonic chord, no third. The melody then drops a step to another dissonant note, this time a thirty-second note, and then plunges down six notes to the tonic note, which itself is heard as a dissonant note at this point, before it dips down a half step to an E natural, the leading tone in the key, and then back up to the tonic note, finally heard as a consonance. Here is a simplified version of just that bar. It's certainly austere, almost uncomfortably so. Measures 2 and 3 employ some of the same elements, for example the persistence of non-harmonic tones, the large leaps, and the dotted sixteenth followed by a descending thirty-second note, although the melodic patterns are by no means identical. The fourth bar provides some contrast, new articulation markings are introduced, and we pause on the dominant chord. Here are the first four bars with increasingly active and very effective contrapuntal accompaniment provided by the other strings. The following measures move temporarily to the relative major, while employing many of the same motives. Interestingly, Joseph Kerman, who can always be depended on for thoughtful insights into the Beethoven quartets, complains that the first part of the theme strives too greedily for gloom, with its plentitude of morose-sounding non-harmonic tones but that the later turn toward the relative major sounds a little glib. At any rate, we soon return to F minor with the melody presented high in the cellist's range against a very elaborate first violin counterpoint. Here is that turn to the relative major and the very first part of the cello's version of the theme. The second version of the first theme, the one presented by the cello, flows into a transition which, though brief, is studded with dramatic gestures, including some very florid figures, 
first from the two violins playing high in their range and then echoed by the lower strings. We, however, are going to skip to the second subject itself, which appears in the minor dominant rather than the more likely relative major key. It's presented initially in the cello, and it's again rather somber, although this time devoid of non-harmonic tones. It consists initially of ascending triadic arpeggios on the tonic and dominant chords in the new key, the second of these in first inversion. The new melody is accompanied by a figuration pattern, introduced a measure earlier, in the first violin, which, within its pattern of repeated 32nd notes, gradually reveals a very effective contramelody proceeding in contrary motion. Eventually, the violin takes up the repeated melodic phrase, and the cello adds its own countermelody. We briefly find ourselves in B-flat major, somewhat surprisingly, as we continue on with the repeated statements of the two-bar phrase. But after just three bars, we're back in C minor, and when we get there, we encounter a very interesting and somewhat more rhythmically aggressive passage built initially on chromatically descending half-steps, which some commentators have referred to as a sighing motive. The emphatic buildup you heard at the end of my excerpt leads to a fairly brief closing section slash codetta marked by a new theme that many commentators have described as containing a weeping motive, despite its fairly jaunty little rhythmic figures. There are still numerous echoes of the second theme, but the passage nevertheless has a personality of its own. The development section focuses on the second subject, which appears first in a major key, A-flat major, 
and is treated imitatively, although the first subject returns as well in a very effective passage where parts of it are traded off between the upper strings as the cello plays an arpeggio bass pizzicato pattern in 32nd notes against it. The closing section Codetta theme also makes its presence felt, and you will hear a little of that in a minute. We also meet up with some unexpected enharmonic modulations along the way. But I'm only going to play one more excerpt from this movement, and it's a new theme introduced into the development section, appearing rather unexpectedly after the Codetta theme, including the weeping motive I referred to earlier, appears to be taking us to the end of the development section. This new theme, which unfolds slowly, is in D-flat major and is highly contrasting and to some commentators has seemed to suggest hope in contrast with the weeping theme that precedes it. But we have to be a little careful about over-interpreting the metaphysical significance of these thematic contrasts since, as you'll hear, the new theme in D-flat major still includes some motivic elements from the weeping motive, although they do seem transformed by the change of key. Have we then turned a corner in terms of the emotional connotations of this movement? Well, the recapitulation returns the original themes, somewhat embellished, back to F minor, as well as the musical sigh motive and the weeping motive I referred to earlier. So, no permanent change there. But as we approach the end of the movement, there is a significant change, really an unexpected addition, an accompanied cadenza-like flourish featuring violin one initially, but soon incorporating violin two, and clearly ending in C major, right before we spring into the finale. This could well be, as Angus Watson suggests, the deep mood of sorrow and pity finally purged and replaced with joy. Or it could be simply a colorful way to prepare for the launch of the Russian theme that begins the finale. You'll recall that Razumovsky himself had requested the incorporation of Russian melodies into the quartets. And here the request is fulfilled for the first. We've seen a number of rondo finales lately, but this is not another. It's in sonata form, in 2-4 time, and marked allegro, with an especially colorful development section. But we're going to focus here on the first theme, the Russian theme. 
But is the melody quintessentially Russian? Is it perhaps one of those dark and gloomily atmospheric melodies that many listeners might well associate with some of the more famous Russian composers of the later 19th century? Not really, although the original text, which concerns a soldier worn down by the travails of military life, could conceivably have drawn forth such an approach. But not here. The melody is in F major, although it begins on a D. Some listeners hear the key as touching on a modal D minor as the theme proceeds, but most experience it as a perky major key melody exuding high spirits. Here's the first two presentations of the theme, the first by the cello, initially against a violin trill on the fifth scale degree, and then eight bars later by the first violin itself. Rhythmically, it's pretty dynamic, and the staccato markings give it an additional air of jauntiness, so it's hard to imagine a context in which the tempo would be very slow, the traditional text notwithstanding. Near the end of my excerpt, you heard the viola pick up the tune, and then a little later, both violins toss around motives from it until we pass into the beginning of the modulatory transition section marked by a flurry of descending sixteenth notes in thirds between the two violins. It leads to a second subject in C major, the melody originally in the second violin, one that is more lyrical and sustained in nature, unfolding mostly in quarter notes. After its first presentation, it reappears in the cello, the key having darkened temporarily to C minor. Following the second subject, there is a more rhythmically dynamic closing section and a brief codetta. But we're going to move on to the development section, and particularly its treatment of the Russian theme. The development also relies heavily on modulatory transition and closing section motives as well, especially in the latter part of the section. But it's the various permutations of the motives from the Russian theme, including inversions, especially of the opening measures, that initially provide the greatest interest. Here is the first part of the development section. Thank you. 
the Russian theme sneaks back in rather unexpected fashion in the recapitulation, and the coda is full of more surprises, including a little passage of overlapping imitation where Beethoven combines part of the second phrase of the Russian theme with part of the first. More surprises occur in the form of major changes in tempo right before the final chords of the movement, the Russian theme appearing adagio ma non troppo for a few bars before breaking into a presto section, which drives us to the final cadence eight measures later. All in all, it's quite a quartet, the long and richly complex first movement, the apparent naivete of its first theme notwithstanding, the provocatively repetitious scherzo movement, the intensely emotional slow movement, and then the ingeniously playful finale, a very attractive movement, even though Kerman and others have wondered if it really represents the best way to close this particular quartet. But we are, at any rate, going to move on now and take a somewhat quicker look at the second quartet of the set, number 8 in E minor. The first movement of the F major quartet had a very relaxed, almost cheerful beginning, but the E minor quartet is about as different in this respect as one could imagine. It's marked allegro and is all intensity and drama, made clear immediately by the opening multiple stops, staccato tonic and dominant chords played forte. Then, after a measure of expectant silence, and that sort of silence plays an unusually important role in this movement, we're introduced to the two important motives that constitute a large part of the first subject. The first is a four-note arpeggiation of the E minor chord in violin one and cello in eighth notes, starting on the tonic, moving down to the fifth of the chord, then ascending up the chord to reach the higher octave fifth. The second motive, mostly in sixteenth notes, moves up a step before plummeting down a dominant minor ninth chord, which resolves back up to the tonic note. Then, after another measure of silence, we hear the same pair of motives again, but up a half step. Here are the first eight bars. The short-term effect is a little perplexing. It's as if we begin in E minor and then shift to F major a couple of measures later. That's the lower second scale degree in the original key, of course, and we've seen Beethoven become increasingly fond of that so-called Neapolitan relationship. In fact, you may remember a similar maneuver in the opening bars of the Appassionata Piano Sonata, Opus 57. There, he begins to move back to the original key fairly quickly, and he does here as well, mostly by breaking off the first of the two motives you just heard, modifying it slightly to create a diminished seventh sonority, and tossing it around a bit. Soon we find ourselves driving toward a very clear cadence on E minor, and any sense of tonal ambiguity has been whisked away. The tension level remains high, however, as a new motive is introduced. New, but as is so common for Beethoven, based on one heard earlier. 
and it isn't long before our newfound tonal clarity evaporates as Beethoven begins a fierce, sequentially-based modulatory transition that briefly incorporates C minor and G minor. Here is that initial reaffirmation of E minor, followed by the transition that ends up on a D major chord. After that very tension-filled transition, the much calmer and more sweetly lyrical second subject in G major comes as a welcome relief, although the sweetness is interrupted briefly by some passing shadows. First a brief glimpse of a C minor chord, and then a couple of rhythmically charged interruptions by accented diminished seventh chords, before the section concludes back somewhat nebulously on G major. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard this second subject beginning to merge into the closing section, a more tonally restless section marked by a series of repeated across-the-bar syncopations and a crescendo. But the brief codetta is all sweetness and light once again, back in an unadulterated G major marked by repeated tonic-dominant tonic cadences and descending arpeggios. As in the opening of the exposition, the development section begins with staccato chords and pregnant silences, but in the surprising key of E-flat major. But it doesn't stay there long, and soon we find ourselves heading toward B minor. That too is short-lived, and eventually we spend a little time in C major among other key areas. All of the main themes are represented, often in fragmented form, and there's a lot of rhythmic energy as we proceed, Beethoven re-employing some of his earlier syncopated patterns. Beethoven chooses to repeat not only the exposition, but also the development and recapitulation. And since the more lyrical second subject is recapitulated in E major, that leaves it to the coda to reaffirm not only the original key, but also the dramatic ethos of the first subject. The final measures of the movement are quieter than might have been expected, but perhaps more effective because of that. But we are going to move on now to the slow movement in E major, common time, marked molto adagio, 
and, Beethoven adds, it must be played with great feeling. It's also in a sonata form, but without any repeats. We're going to look only at the main themes. The first is often referred to as chorale-like, since on its first presentation, it is harmonized mostly in half-note block chords. The melody stated by first violin, with second violin, viola, and then cello, added to the texture in turn after an interval of two beats. At first, the theme's quiet, gentle lyricism seems to be a stark contrast with the agitation associated with the first movement. But the full diminished seventh chord on the downbeat of the third measure and the chromatic intrusion in the second violin in measure four, leading us into the second four-bar phrase, provides just a hint of a darker undertone to come. While we may begin in a gentle chorale-like mode, Beethoven does not allow the melody to revel in its tranquility for long. In the second presentation, with the melody subtly reharmonized, now taken up by the second violin, the first violin adds a more rhythmically active countermelody against it. Here's a little bit of that countermelody. A slight modification of the motive you just heard in the first violin is used as a brief transition to the next important melodic idea, and then continues as a counterpoint to it. This new melody also unfolds broadly in half notes at first, but then introduces a dotted rhythm figure as it continues. It's a lovely little theme, but it's not actually the second subject, because we're not in the key of the dominant yet. So technically, it would probably have to be considered a further development of the first subject or part of the transition. We are, however, solidly entrenched in the key of B major for this theme.
But really, this is just one thematic idea in a series of them, part of which was already introduced earlier, and which moves on to new ideas only faintly related to it. So it's all really quite fluid, and different analysts even disagree as to where the second subject actually begins. And as we proceed to the development section, recapitulation and coda, there's more rhythmic agitation and dramatic intensity than one might expect. The movement turns out to be less serene, or at least less a musical depiction of undisturbed serenity, than we might have assumed from the opening measures. But coloring all descriptions of this movement is the story told by Beethoven's student Czerny and the violinist Holtz that Beethoven was inspired to compose this particular movement by the contemplation of a starlit sky. The story is, as Radcliffe suggests, considerably less improbable than many similar stories. But if a starlit sky inspired the serenity of the first chorale-like subject, it does not explain the agitation, controlled to be sure, but nonetheless clearly evident in the development section and coda. Perhaps Beethoven noted some turbulence in his starlit sky, but more likely it's the result of the inclination and ability of the increasingly mature Beethoven to inject weight and even dramatic intensity into movements not seemingly designed at the outset to support those attributes. At any rate, we're going to move on now to the third movement. It's in E minor again, 3-4 time, allegretto, and initially pianissimo, and features a number of clever and often humorously wrong-footed rhythmic manipulations that mark it as equal to Beethoven's wittiest scherzos, even if it's not labeled as one. It begins with an exuberant and athletic theme that bounds up the tonic triad before working its way down in fits and starts that manage to avoid a melodic downbeat for the remainder of its eight-measure run. Some commentators have pointed to a possible link with the mazurka style because of an emphasis on the second beat here, but it's really more the absence of the normal strong beat accent that is most striking. Here are the first eight bars without repeat. The harmonies are pretty simple here, tonic and dominant chords alternating for the first five bars, although Beethoven does make a little detour in the direction of D major near the end. In the middle section, the melodic motives take on different shapes, but the rhythmic interactions between the parts stay largely the same for the first 12 measures. The texture is a bit different, the second violin doubling the first for the first few bars before the first violin sustains a tonic note for several measures. Harmonically, we tilt first toward A minor, and then by measure 9, settle into F major for a while. An unexpected arrival, but another Neapolitan relationship with the original key of E minor. When we do make our brief digression to the key of F major, Beethoven increases the volume to fortissimo and introduces a bold new motive with multiple stops in the violins. This time, in something of a roll reversal, it's the cello who scrupulously avoids the downbeat while the other three instruments attack it with a vengeance. 
Here's the 16-bar middle section. The original theme then returns as we head back to E minor. Then we move on to the trio in E major, where we encounter another Russian tune, six measures long. This one was originally a hymn rather than a folk song, but the tempo and treatment is such that its origins would be far from obvious. The melody is presented first in the viola in a combination of slurred and staccato notes and accompanied by a sweeping triplet-based countermelody in the second violin. It's actually a counter-subject since the tune will be treated to fugal imitation. The second violin enters up a fifth as the original counter-subject goes down to the cello. Then the cello takes on the theme, and finally the first violin high in its range. Then the texture is reduced to just two lines, and the subject is introduced and imitated again, now with a new counter-subject. Here is a bit of that imitation. Beethoven purposely belaboring the point here. Can this particular melody really stand up to that much imitation? Because there's more to follow, including some close quarters canonic imitation. Or is it all part of the joke? Because labeled or not, this movement is certainly every bit a scherzo. While we can't be sure of Beethoven's intention here, after a more subtle transition section, we return to the spirited first section and the ever so slightly tedious imitation is left far behind. We'll move on now to the final movement. It's an attractive one, but not a terribly complex one, so we'll deal with it fairly quickly. It's in E minor, but actually begins in C major. It's alla breve or cut time and marked presto, and it's in the familiar form of a sonata rondo. The refrain theme begins in the first violin with a declaration of the tonic note on middle C and then leaps up a couple of octaves to introduce a three-note ascending motive, one that develops a life of its own later in the movement. Then it begins to descend in staccato notes separated by eighth rests, down to the fifth scale degree. The next two bars are basically a filled-in, more compact version of the first three. The next two bars after that present a more interesting variant of bars two and three, and finally the nine-measure theme concludes with a sweeping ascending line which hints at a surprising change of key. More of that later. 
And of course, it all happens very quickly. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt, the melody is then repeated, three more times actually, with slightly varied accompaniments, and with a little four-bar tag separating two of the repetitions. It's an interesting little theme, combining quasi-military staccato accompaniment with a little gypsy flair. Here are the later repetitions of the theme, going a little into the transition. Harmonically, it's rather simple, at least in the first few measures. The cello keeps repeating the tonic note against mostly tonic and subdominant chords. But it does get much more interesting in the final measures, where Beethoven adds some surprising chromatic alterations to a short ascending melodic line, and all of a sudden we seem to find ourselves in E minor. And just as suddenly, that key disappears, and we're back in C major. The first episode in B minor is a little less interesting, certainly from a rhythmic perspective, since it consists mostly of ascending and occasionally descending arpeggios in quarter notes. Here is the first episode, going into the quixotic little retransition based largely on the three-note motive from the refrain theme I pointed out earlier, and a little bit of the second occurrence of the refrain theme. These themes provide the basic building blocks for the movement. Since this is a sonata rondo, a development section of sorts replaces the second episode. Here is part of that development section.
References to earlier motives are clear enough, but this section does have its own rather distinctive personality. It's followed not by a return of the refrain theme, as is sometimes the case, but by a variant of the first episode. Then we hear the retransition again, and then the third version of the refrain theme. There is a coda following this last return of the refrain theme, and, as is so often the case, it serves as another little development section before the refrain makes its final curtain call. These final two movements of the E minor quartet may lack the gravitas of the first two movements, but they are as immediately likable as any composed in this period. We've not talked at all about the quartet in C major, opus 59, number 3, but for those who wish to explore that work, let me suggest, first of all, some of the standard sources I've referenced many times, the books on the quartets by Radcliffe and Kerman, and the book on Beethoven's chamber music by Angus Watson. There are many others, of course, all with something to say. Of particular interest for the last two quartets of Opus 59 is Beethoven for a Later Age, Living with the String Quartets by Edward Dusenbeer, who provides the very important performer's perspective on these works. In our next episode, we will look at Beethoven's Symphony No. 4 in B-flat major, Opus 60.